0: Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we've sung about your word. We have prayed regarding your word. And Father, now we turn to study your word. We desire to be a people of your word. And so I ask, God, as we now turn to this word, that you would direct our attention to its truths. Father, your spirit that inspired it, I pray, would guard our hearts from distraction. Father, guard error from my lips so that what we hear would be that which we desire you would want us to hear. And we ask, Father, that you would lead us to see in your word the the, the glory that you are, the, the beautiful God. It was far greater than anything that we could ever imagine. Father, might we come to know you in a new way, a a deeper, richer, life-transforming way today. And we pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the book of Exodus and find chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. And last week we began a new series entitled, The God of the Bible. In which, as I explained then, we're going to be examining Scripture that we might come to know God as He has revealed Himself rather than as He has often conceived. Meaning, we're going to get to know God on His terms, not ours. Because I believe that our world and and our nation in particular is awash with ideas about God. Everyone has an opinion about what God's like. How he works and and what he wants. And and friends with a heritage of faith like ours, a constitution reflecting biblical values, a pledge claiming unity under God, and a currency stating that we trust in him, talk of God is common in most spheres. But what God? Are we talking about the God of Benjamin Franklin and Thomas Jefferson? Or the God of Jonathan Edwards and Isaac Bacchus? Are we talking about the God of Edward Everett and William Ellery Channing or the God of Charles Hodge and J.P. Boyce? Are are we talking about the God of Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry Ward Beecher or the God of D.L. Moody and B.B. Warfield, the God of Joel Osteen or Creflo Dalla or the God of Billy Graham and John Piper? Whose God are we talking about? when we use this term God? Are, are, are they the same? And, and if so, how? And, and how can we know? Does it even really matter if we know? And these are questions that I believe are of immense import if we desire to overcome our mortality and ensure life into eternity. So where do we begin? And as we noted last week, if you were with us, we can't begin with creation. We can't look to the temporal and hope to comprehend the eternal. We can't examine the natural and thereby come to know the supernatural. Rather, we must begin with what God has given us, declared regarding himself. And as Christians, we believe that this is given to us in the scriptures, the Bible. And thus, we now turn to Exodus chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verse 16. But before we do, let me just explain briefly why. And that's, that's why we're still in Exodus, since that's the chapter book we were in last week. When when I was first planning this series prior to our sabbatical, I had intended to systematically address the person of God as Trinity, examining his attributes, both the communicable as well as the incommunicable, as well as discussing his work of creation and redemption. And to this end, I had discussed, or I had planned, to take select passages from the scriptures in which each of these elements is addressed and thus establish the God of the Bible. However, the more that I prayed about what God would have us to see together, the more I felt drawn to Exodus. Because as we saw, if you were with us last week, this is the story of God's rescue of his people. That's a people who had been enslaved for 400 years, during which time they had received no word from God. This is a people with a rich heritage of faith revealed by their founding fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A people who, while having heard of God, had long been exposed to the gods of Egypt and had clearly become confused, conflating the character of Egypt's gods with that of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And thus, while Exodus is a story of rescue, I believe it's also a story of revelation. It's a story of God's revealing himself to Israel and guiding them to know him as he is and not as they had come to believe him to be. And God begins this revelatory work with Moses, the former prince of Egypt, who's living in self-imposed exile in Midia. Moses fled Pharaoh's presence after murdering one of his employees, and he settled in Midian in this desert where he took a job herding sheep. And one day, As you recall, Moses sees a burning bush that, despite flames, fails to be consumed. And as he discovers upon closer inspection, this sucker can speak. And in the verses that we then studied last week, we saw God introduce himself to Moses, the man who had a concept of God, of of the divine the supernatural, and who had heard of this God specific, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but at this stage in his life did not know God. And thus, God introduced himself to Moses as I Am. He's the only God whose existence defines him, who defies time, and whose name is Yahweh. And this is where we lift off last week at the conclusion of verse 15. And so I invite you to follow along now as I read further, beginning with verse 16. So Exodus chapter 3, verse 16 reads, "'Go assemble the elders of Israel "'and say to them, "'The Lord, the God of your fathers, "'the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, "'appeared to me and said, "'I have watched over you "'and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt.'" I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. The elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and to say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. So I will stretch out my hand and strike the Egyptians with all the wonders that I will perform among them. After that, he will let you go. And I will make the Egyptians favorably disposed towards this people, so that when you leave, you will not go empty-handed." every woman is to ask her neighbor and any woman living in her house for articles of silver and gold and for clothing which you will put on your sons and daughters. And so you will plunder the Egyptians. And may God bless the public reading of His word this morning. Following God's revelation of his name, Yahweh, the, the name by which he is to be remembered from generation to generation. The Lord directs Moses to go and gather the elders of Israel. So that's the leaders, and to speak to them. And in that which God directs Moses to say, I believe that we encounter two divine self revelations. So, two truths that God reveals regarding himself, with the first being that God has presence. God has presence, and an unlimited presence at that church. An unlimited unlimited presence. You, You notice how God tells Moses to inform the elders that the Lord appeared to me the Lord appeared to me the word appeared here is one that communicates this idea of something suddenly becoming visible that previously was invisible in the original language of the Old Testament the the verb to appear is derived from a root term meaning to see and it's used regularly in the scriptures of the Old Testament to describe God's interaction with people such as in Genesis in chapter 12 and verse 7 where we read that the Lord appeared, same term, to Abram. And then again in Genesis chapter 35 and verse 9, where God appeared, same term, to Jacob. And in the verses, if you were with us last week, we studied from Exodus chapter 3 and verse 2, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses. And thus, in each of these instances, what I believe we discover is that Yahweh isn't simply an idea, He isn't simply this this idea that was born in the mind of a man named Abraham, a, a concept to which attributes could be ascribed or purposes provided. Rather, he has substance such that he may be seen. Our God occupies space and time, but he does so in a manner that differs radically from all the other deities described in the Scriptures. For all of Egypt's gods were tied to idols that were housed in temples. The gods of Babylon, of Philistia, and Canaan were all fixed in the forms of their idols. And so while they may have possessed presence in a sense, their presence was limited as is ours. But Emmanuel, our God, the God of the Bible, is not limited. He has unlimited presence. And we believe this, why? Because he appeared to Moses. Prior to God's appearance, Moses couldn't see him. And then suddenly, Moses saw him. God's presence is unlimited. And this is an attribute that theologians refer to as omnipresence. So God isn't tied to that one location, and he isn't limited to a single form. As we saw last week, God appeared to Moses in a flaming fire, this bush that while burning was not destroyed. Now, as far as I know, this is the only instance of such an appearance to Moses or anyone else in the scriptures for that matter. God never again appeared as such to people. For As we're going to see later on in our series, God goes before his people in the desert as a cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. His presence moves with his people and it isn't limited to a single form. And, and let me just point out here, in case there were any that might want to argue, that just because the scriptures declare that God appeared and was seen by Moses doesn't mean, doesn't actually mean that God has substantive presence. And so we're clear on the point that we're making here. I'm using this term substantive to mean real rather than than apparent, expressing actual existence. And so to this end this morning, we might say that this Bible and the Bibles that are in your hands have substantive presence in in that they fill space in time. They, They may be seen. You can touch them, know that they're real. Does that make sense? So that's how we're using this term substantive. And so in case there were any this morning who would like to argue that just because God appeared, was seen by Moses, doesn't mean he has substantive presence. And this is a fair criticism because there are, in fact, a number of things in life that appear and they may be seen, but which, in fact, are illusory, such as a, a mirage. They appear, you can see them, but you can't touch them. Or a shadow, you can see it, it appears. It appears. You can't touch them. They're not tangible, right? But, church, God's appearance is different. And I believe that it is. And this truth is revealed for us as it's contained in this term appeared. Because Moses also used this word, the same term, when he was writing in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 9 to describe the creation. And it's there he wrote And God said, Let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. Same term, and it was so. The appearance of dry ground, the substance upon which we now find ourselves living, is clearly real and actual, isn't it? Thus what I believe Moses is communicating here is the reality of something which was previously invisible to the human eye, but which was suddenly become visible. And that which is now visible, in the case of creation, the dry ground, is Clearly substantive, thus, so is the God whom Moses encountered in the desert. And church, I believe that this is a point of incredible significance for us in that it reveals at least three things about God's presence, with the first being this morning, the most obvious, God exists. The God of the Bible exists. As we stated earlier, the fact that God appears in such a manner that Moses may see him in the flames of the fire suggests to all but the most obdurate, in my opinion, That God isn't an idea. He isn't a a figment of our imagination or the product of our unconscious, as some psychologists have posited. God is real. He exists. He is as real as the flames and the bush which Moses encountered. In fact, God's reality is even greater than that of the fire and the bush because neither of them can change. They couldn't appear and then disappear. Their forms are fixed. The space that they filled is limited. But God appeared. His substance is real and unlimited, and therefore of a form far greater than that of the created order's reality. God, the God of the Bible, friends, exists. He is real. And second, the God of the Bible has an intimate relationship to His creation. The things in which and to which God appeared, I believe, establish His reality and the reality of His relationship To creation. In his appearance, God interacts with the created order. He enters our existence, and he does so in a manner that isn't destructive. In his appearing, God didn't destroy the bush. He didn't consume creation. Rather, he filled it, and he filled it with his glorious presence. Moses later described this reality in more detail to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy. In chapter 10 and verse 14, where he declared, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. And so by this stage in Moses' life, he'd come to know the fact that Yahweh, who is the God of the Bible, created everything that occupies space in time from nothing. And thus he is the Lord of space. He's not limited by it. And as the creator who alone was, Before all that now is, God stands outside the limits of space because he's their maker. God isn't bound by the physical or obliged to obey the laws of nature because he's supernatural and he wrote the laws. Our God is the creator of everything, and yet he appears in his creation to his creation. And I believe that this reveals not only the reality of his relationship to creation, but the intimacy of that. Connection, And so, church, as we consider then the many gods that people have worshipped across the ages, while, while many have been afforded great power, such as Zeus, the Greek god of the sky and of thunder who was believed to control lightning, or Poseidon, the god of the sea, or their god Hades, the god of the underworld, or, or just take, for example, Brahma, who was the Hindu creator god, or more recently the spirit force of the New Age movement. While all of these gods are afforded deference due to their supposed great power, none of these deities have appeared as did Yahweh, the God of the Bible. They don't have substantive presence beyond the fixed forms their idols have taken, and therefore they have no relationship with men and women apart from that which people have initiated. The God of the Bible appeared to Moses. Thus, He exists. He is real. He has intimate relationships to His creation, and He is imminent in His creation. He's imminent in His creation. So, in contrast to the many man-made gods of yesterday and today who are conceived as distant and disinterested in creation, the God of the Bible is imminent, meaning He remains in His creation. The prophet Jeremiah recorded this truth later on as God declared, am I only a God nearby and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And David t- it describes and articulates the spatial intimacy so beautifully in Psalm 139 where he stated, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. Emmanuel, our God is no abstract deity removed and disinterested in us. In fact, the Bible itself is proof of this. As it tells the story of God's involvement with his creation, particularly the people in it everything in our world depends upon God's imminence as the apostle paul noted he gives all men life and breath and everything else that's in acts 17:25 and again in colossians 1:17 he stated that in christ all things hold together and he's continually sustaining all things by his powerful word hebrews 1:3 so the god of the bible exists He he is real. He has an intimate relationship to creation. He's imminent in creation, but our God is distinct from his creation. And I believe that this is a point of great significance today in light of our cultures, growing interest in Mother Earth, protecting our planet and all things green. I've, I've heard many people speak of how they love being out in nature, and that's their church. That's where they worship, and it's where they experience God the most most clearly. And friends, what statements such as this suggest, and I'm not saying that everyone who, who speaks like this is a pantheist, but it, act, it certainly seems as if they believe that God is in his creation. And we've acknowledged this point earlier, God is omnipot- or omnipresent, but their statements suggest that God is so, in such a way that they may worship Him by being in nature, by caring for nature, by paying homage to nature. For many, God is everything. He's in this room right now. He's he's the chairs, He's the the air, the the outside grass, the oceans and the trees. And we could go on. For many, God is, is everything. Everything is divine. And this is the belief of Buddhism and a number of other Eastern religions. But church, if everything is divine, Then, how could God appear? For he would have had to have always been visible, right? You know, those who view everything as divine domesticate God by denying the distinction between creator and creation. And yet, we read in Genesis 1: In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There was nothing in the beginning. But God, and thus the creation that he wrought is distinct from his being. And in our text today, we read that God appeared, revealing that he is not one with creation. He isn't the same as creation. Rather, he is Lord over creation. God is distinct from his creation. And friends, isn't this a glorious truth to know that our God is distinct from his creation? Because how otherwise could we understand natural disasters if they were divine? Or, or how could we comprehend the, the atrocities that we find committed by terrorist groups or the horrendous school shootings? What category would we place these actions in if everything was divine? And, and if everything were divine, then so would you and I be. I mean, we, we'd all be divine. Now, I can't, I can't speak for you, but if I was divine, while my pride would certainly crave your worship, I know myself far too well to be able to give such a God any kind of respect. I just know myself. I am a broken sinner. As are you. (laughs) We all are. So praise God. He is distinct from his creation. That he is imminent in creation with an intimate relationship to his creation. Why? Because he is real. He exists. Yahweh appeared to Moses. Thus God has presence. And God can speak. The God of the Bible can speak. If you look back to verse 16, There in our text, we'll see how Yahweh informs Moses to assemble the elders and let them know that God appeared to him and said. God appeared to him and said. And and that which follows then sheds light, a great deal of light, upon the nature of God speaking. But before we consider what God said, I want us to simply savor the significance of God speaking. And the word that's used here in the original language of the Old Testament isn't one with some fancy meaning or some unique application for those who are hoping for a a new twist on God's speaking. This is simply one of the most common forms of expressing verbal communication, meaning audible communication in the scriptures. So this isn't some form of ESP or mental telepathy here. The speaking that God did was verbal, audible, comprehensible, and purposeful. And I'd like to comment a little further on each of these, beginning with verbal. I believe the fact that the God of the Bible can speak using words is foundational to Revelation. It's foundational. For If all that God could do was appear like a a comet in the sky or some ghostly apparition, then just imagine the confusion that would ensue as people sought to determine His character. How could we know what God is like How could we understand what He's done and why? How could we appreciate His plans? And for that matter, could we even know His plans? If all that God could do was appear, then besides the obvious bummer of a limit being placed upon our our deity, we'd be left to ourselves to try and interpret Him. But the God of the Bible speaks. And He speaks using words. And words that may be heard. Words that may be heard, which I believe means that the words that Moses heard weren't like those invented by a dehydrated desert cave dweller, or interpreted by a man wearing certain spectacles, or experienced by an extreme South Asian ascetic. No. Islam, Mormonism, and Buddhism do not serve gods who can speak and be heard audibly. They they all profess to have heard from God by visions and in trances but not a one of these forms of communication can be verified can it that which these men heard simply had to be accepted as from god because not another person to my knowledge ever heard them speak now i can see that the god of the bible has also appeared to people in visions and, and in dreams as described in the scriptures but so or at least so the fact that he isn't limited to speaking audibly is true but the fact that our god can I believe, certainly distinguishes him from all other gods. God's speaking is verbal, it is audible, but it's also comprehensible. The words that Moses heard made sense. So they weren't some some unique heavenly language that only the one who heard it could understand. No, God communicated and he accommodated his creation by employing their means of communication. He spoke and he was heard. And what was said made sense. And further, God's speaking It wasn't limited to a single language. It wasn't like God could only communicate in Hebrew, the language of his chosen people. And right here, let me just point out the beauty of God's communication through human language. So I'm not a linguist, and I know many of you know my brother is, so I can't give you the depth of insight that he most certainly could here. but as we all know, language is tricky, (laughs) particularly our English language. I mean, we have words that sound the same and mean totally different things, We have other words that are spelt the same and yet still mean totally different things. I mean, English isn't the only language with these foibles. I appreciate that. But the point is that human communication can be confusing and imprecise. And yet, God still spoke to our human faculty through the medium of language. Friends, that's grace. That's God accommodating his creation. That's grace. God spoke in such a way that we could understand. And he spoke purposefully. God didn't just bump his gums, fill in the airways with meaningless drivel. He, he didn't repeat himself unnecessarily. God didn't waste or mince words. He spoke for a purpose, to reveal himself, his plans, and his purposes for his people. And friends, I believe that this has profound implications for us as the church, because if, if we seriously believe that this book, the Bible, if we seriously believe that this book is God's words to us, shouldn't we be reading it, studying it, hiding its words in our heart, memorizing it so that its message would capture our soul so that we might know God as he has chosen to reveal himself? rather than how we would like him to be based upon our own appetites, if God speaks through the medium of human language, then surely we who speak this language can appreciate the fact that a cursory reading of Scripture cannot suffice. Meaning you, you can't skim the Bible and then think we got it. You can't get a Cliff Notes Bible Books a million and comprehend the character of the God who wrote it. Because, unlike many authors today who, who pad their prose with added verbiage or speakers that will say the same thing only in different ways over and over and over, God doesn't speak carelessly, He doesn't employ words without purpose. The God of the Bible speaks verbally, audibly, comprehensively, and purposely. And here in verse 16, we see the purpose. which God has spoken. So would you look back with me now in our text? Verse 16, God said, Go assemble the elders of Israel and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, appeared to me and said, I have watched over you and have seen what has been done to you in Egypt. And I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt, into the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God appeared and he spoke to Moses so that Moses would know God's person and God's plan, a plan that was for his people's good and that would bring him, that's God, glory. Now, if you were paying attention, you likely caught those next two self-revelations of God that he makes here to Moses, but we're going to examine those more closely next, next week. But right now, I'd like to return in conclusion to the two revelations that we've already seen God make this morning, that He has presence and that He can speak. And as we've already noted, no other religion, to my knowledge, recognizes a God with these attributes. No other God has appeared as did the God of the Bible, a God in intimate relation to His creation, imminent in it, and yet still distinct from it, a God who speaks verbally, audibly, comprehensively, and purposefully. No no other religion serves a God who, recognizing the chasm, separating the mortal from the divine, appreciating the, the distinction between the natural and the supernatural, initiated a rescue plan by appearing in such a way that people might know Him. The Exodus is a story of rescue, but it's also a story of revelation and one that serves to prepare God's people for His ultimate appearing. And their ultimate rescue, when in a remote Judean village, a virgin would give birth to a son and name him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. Friends, the gospel is the story of God's ultimate appearing, of clothing himself, no longer in light or clouds or in flames of fire, but in flesh. The gospel is the story of God's ultimate revelation. He came as a baby, born to a virgin in a remote village like us in every way. In the appearance of Jesus Christ, men and women no longer had to look away, turn their faces in fear of God's presence. For as Jesus declared, if you've seen me, then you've seen who? You've seen the Father. The gospel is God's ultimate revelation and His ultimate rescue. For in Christ's life, death, and resurrection, sinful men and sinful women were set free from the laws of sin and from the power of death, where before this gulf had lay between the Creator God and His sinful creation, Christ's appearing bridged that gap. He is the way and the truth and the life. And He came to seek and to save the lost, proclaiming this message of hope and forgiveness. The Word which was with God In the beginning. And was God. Came and dwelt with us. Tabernacled with us. As we'll see later on in Exodus. God came and dwelt with us. And worked the greatest rescue mission of all. So that whoever believes in him. Might not perish. But have eternal life. Do you know the God of the Bible this morning? Yahweh appeared to Moses. In a burning bush. And he promised to rescue a people. Some 2,000 years ago, Yahweh once again appeared, but this time He came in the person of His Son, who is Jesus. And He worked salvation for His people by dying on a cross. Do you know the God of the Bible? No, Church, may we be men and women who know this book, because this is how we come to know our God. And if you're here this morning and you don't know the God of the Bible, maybe the God that you've worshipped or shown deference to is one that you've conceived without the guidance of Scripture, then I hope that as we close God might open your eyes or having through our time together open your eyes that you might recognize the God you've created is just that, created. He isn't truly God. He isn't real. But this is where we come to know who that God is so I'd like to close and pray for you as we end. Father, you are a God that has spoken, a God who has appeared. Lord, and in your appearance as Jesus, God the Son, you lived with your creation, like us in every way, and yet without our flaws. Lord Jesus, you were without sin. You fulfilled the Father's will. We couldn't, can't, never will. You did for us. All that we could do was deserve death because of our failure to be good, to even be close to being good. And Lord Jesus, You came, performed all of those things For us, and then took the punishment that we deserved and paid it as well when you died on the cross. But then you rose from the dead so that we might have life. We might once again be in relationship with you, we might know you. Father, thank you that you open our eyes to that truth as we study your word, as we hear your gospel. And Father, I pray for any this morning that that might not know You, might know about You, as we've said before, as did Moses prior to this experience, but he didn't know You until You revealed Yourself. Father, I pray that this morning that You've opened eyes that may not have been opened before to the truth of who You really are. You're not a God that lives to make people happy. You're not a God who's created all things, and then left us to our own devices. You are a God who is above all and alone worthy of praise. And Father, we are your creatures made to reflect your glory. Lord, I pray that you would open, eyes up, open our eyes to how essential It is that we know You as You've revealed Yourself in Your Word. Father, we thank You that You have given us that Word. And we pray that, Lord, You would continue to lead us to know You more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.